Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome in. We're continuing in the the seven messages in uh, Revelation 2 and 3. We're taking a, a pass through and just looking at different things. So uh, last time we hit up uh, the first three messages in uh, chapter two. Now we're going to finish out chapter two, starting with Thyatira. So uh, go ahead and read this. I'll, I'll read chapter two, verses 19 through 24. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that you and that your latter works exceed the first, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some have called what some call the deep things of Satan to you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. So with this, uh, mm. Thyatira, this church has been growing in their faith. Your yeah. works of late are greater than at first. Yeah. What well, do we mean news. by works? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good news a little bit, right? Yeah. Again. Yeah. So here we have, we mentioned in our last episode that I know occurs 12 times mm-hmm. and typically it's, I know your works. I know your works and, and your works are, and, and what actually in the Greek construction, I won't get into the details of it, but it's, I know your works. And then it says your love, faith, service, and perseverance. And the love, faith, service, and perseverance actually become the definition of what your deeds are. I, I know your deeds mm-hmm. are, I know your works, and here's what they are. They're love, faith, service, and perseverance. Now remember, of course, fourfold often represents completion or totality with regard to creation. But notice again, of course, uh, your love is at the beginning and, that's what we found in the church in Ephesus, right? That, uh, that you left your first love. And so this church is, well, they're growing in their love, but, and actually the, the word but is a very strong but too, but I have this against you. So unfortunately, uh, this is going to have a strong con- condemnation. Mm-hmm. So it also says, I have, uh, what I have against you is that you're tolerating the woman Jezebel, who is calling herself a prophetess and is teaching and leading astray. Uh, leading straight my servants so that they commit immora- immortality, immorality, 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 <laughs> uh, and eat food sacrificed to idols. So we discussed Jezebel a little bit a few episodes ago, right? Yes, yes, we did. Yeah, and so let's let's not go in and rehash all of that, but I think there's a few things that are important to add, and that is this. First off, as we discussed, her name Jezebel is probably not her actual name, but she's being associated with the pagan queen of Israel who led the people astray. Uh, and she led the people of the, of the northern tribes of Israel astray into the worship of paganisms. We don't know what her real name uh, actually was, but nonetheless, um, she's leading the people of Thyatira to falling after the patron gods of the, of the Roman world, similar to what was occurring in Pergamum that we discussed in our last episode. So uh, David De Silva, whom we hope to have on in a few weeks, uh, says that uh, Jezebel probably welcomed the Nicolaitan prophets and even supported them. And so are Nicolaitans, uh, uh, prophets, and supported them. So uh, the message, of course, is simply that your activities are unacceptable. And by engaging in them, the followers of this prophetess are ultimately colluding with the devil. And notice in verse uh, 24, it says, 
the deep things of Satan. And so her activities represent the deep things of Satan. So this is not acceptable. And she's leading God's people astray. So uh, the false prophet Tess Jezebel then is depicted not only as leading the people into eating food sacrificed to idols, but also into sexual immorality. Uh, and it seems that this is probably better understood as actual sexual immorality. We discussed in our last episode mm -hmm. that sexual immorality could be idolatry or it could be actual sexual immorality. And the, the relationship with Numbers 25 and it seemed to be sexual immorality then suggests that, that, that it is here also. Another thing that's actually interesting is that the word translated misleads or leads astray or something of that, of that nature. Let's see. The New American Standard says, uh, verse 20 of chapter 2, she uh, leads astray or she leads my bondservants astray. The ESV says uh, she's seducing. That's interesting mm -hmm. there. The Net Bible says she deceives, mm -hmm. which that's so a does the CSB. Yeah. Uh, okay, very good. Uh, the NIV says misleads. The New Living Translation says leads a form of a to lead ultimately a form of the word lead and the new king james says she teaches and seduces so another word of sedu and again seduce is deception and with sexual connotations right which mm -hmm. fits the context but uh, nonetheless it a little bit distorts the fact that this word's going to appear later on in the book and that's kind of what i'm looking at so the nrs uh, new revised standard version also says beguiling so uh, yeah. I guess I have to get a thesaurus out for that one there. <laughs> there. But here, here's the thing that says, one of the things that I'm going to argue throughout our study is that John intentionally uses words a certain number of times, as we've already discussed, but he also will often use them only in certain places. And then he connects these words. So we discussed this a couple of weeks ago uh, with the sword, that the, words, the word for a sword, mm -hmm. there's actually two Greek words and that they're regularly used interchangeably. But then we know, and John even uses them interchangeably in chapter six. But then we notice that every time he uses uh, Machaira, it's always the sword of the Roman Empire and the sword of execution. But when he uses Romphia, he always uses, that's the sword that comes out of Jesus's mouth. So John's very intentional with, with this. But one of the things he also does, though, is he'll use words like in this passage and in this passage in order to connect those two passages. In other words, a word might occur only in these two places. And like, oh, that's interesting. And John, intent, he does this so often, it's obvious he's doing it intentionally, where he wants us to read this passage in, in light of that passage. And then you can read the passage and go, oh, yes, yeah, see, there's other connections that tell us that these texts uh, go together also. What's interesting is that this word misleads, how it's used in the book of Revelation. It's used uh, eight times, so we wouldn't see any symbolic significance to the number eight here in any particular sense at all. But one time, obviously, in reference to Jezebel, she misleads or she deceives or she seduces. The other seven times, twice for the deceiving actions of the false prophet in Revelation 13 and Revelation 19, the false prophet deceives. Once for the heart of Babylon, she deceives. And three times for Satan. In fact, let's go to chapter 12, verse 9 and look at the maybe the, the preeminent example of this. It says, the great dragon, Revelation 12, verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who's called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. And that's that word, mislead or deceives or seduces, mm. depending on, on, on your translation. So it's Satan is the deceiver. And then and, and, and I'll just note that yeah, now as ahead. someone who's reading the ESV, uh, you have I'm not going to make that connection yeah, in the right. translation because I'm, I'm seeing the deceiver of the whole world in chapter 12, whereas <laughs> in uh, chapter two, it's going to be that word seduce. Right, exactly. And mm. the New American Standard says leads astray. And yet mm -hmm. it says deceives in Revelation 12. 
And so it refers to the activity of Satan and his minions, the heart of Babylon uh, and the false prophet. And yet it's used of this woman Jezebel uh, and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray. And so it's interesting as we go back to chapter two now, uh, where he, he says, uh, I say to you, the rest in Thyatira, this is verse 24. I say to you, the rest in Thyatira who don't hold this teaching and who not, have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, mm. which is probably not something that they would call them, right? It, it seems like some kind of title that you uh, Im, impose on them. So exactly what John means by that is, is uncertain, but the connection with Satan is indicated by the fact that John has used the, this word deceives to say, this woman is deceiving, seducing, leading God's people astray, just like Satan does. Mm. Like, oh, this is not, well, okay, maybe. No, this is like, guys, this is what Satan's doing. So I think that's re really, really prominent there. In verse 20, uh, I'm sorry, 22, we're just in 20. Uh, it's, it, my translation says, behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed. Uh, mm. Other translations say a bed of sickness. So yeah. I'm assuming it means the same thing. W yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, uh, so this is a very, also another common principle that's going to find in the, basically in the prophetic works. Obviously you see it in Jesus too, but obviously in the book of Revelation. Uh, and it's basically called the principle of a lex talionis or lex okay. talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Mm -hmm. The punishment fits the crime. We're going to see this later on in the book of Revelation where God's people are going to be trampled, Revelation 11, and then the nations are trampled. Ah, God's trampling on the nations because you trampled on God's people. Uh, an explicit example is in chapter 16 where the, the seven bowls of God's wrath, whatever you might call that, are poured out. And, and it says, after the third bowl is poured out, an angel says, you are just in these judgments because, and again, this is where translations are important, because they have poured out the blood of your saints and prophets. Ah, the bowls are being poured out because you, they poured out the blood of your saints and prophets. And by the way, a lot of translations said they shed the blood of your saints and prophets. Mm -hmm. And if they use translated as shed, then they're missing the connection between the pouring out of the bowls and the pouring out of God's wrath. So the idea then is, well, she's committed, leaving God's people to commit adultery. So here's what I'm, what's going to happen. And that is, I'm going to throw her upon a bed and a bed of sickness, and she's going to uh, commit, suffer the consequences of, of her actions based on the principle of Lex, Lex Talionis. So a uh, very common theme in the, in the scriptures. It, it continues on and it says, I will strike her children dead in verse uh, 23. So what do we mean by, is this like a generational thing that's going to happen? Like her offspring, uh, little yeah. kids? Like, what does this mean? Yeah, yeah. And children very commonly in the scriptures, there's all kinds of examples of this. Uh, refers to her followers. Okay. John, in fact, in first John even says, mm -hmm. little children or dear children. Yeah. Right? He uses this, it's a term of endearment. So her children are her followers. Uh, you see this in Isaiah chapter eight, first Corinthians four, Galatians, first Timothy, second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, first Peter, where the word children is being used to refer to those who follow her. So it is not, because by the way, if it were her actual children or young kids, then, then, we got a big problem on our hands because this verse is really, it's obviously quite problematic, but no, it's her followers. Okay. Yeah. Um, so John is also addressing other people within the Thyatiran assembly, the church community. Yeah, and, and he says, but I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira. So there's a warning against some of the church, but not all of the church. Right. Uh, those who hold to this, do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them. Uh, I place no other burden on you. Right, exactly. Yeah. And and in fact, it's actually really, really clear. Let me see here what verse we're in. Um, verse 24. 
So it's not an emphatic transition in the Greek text, but the transition is, is clear. But to you, but I say to you, the, the rest, the hoi lepoi, the, the remaining ones who have not known this teaching, I, I place no other burden on you. I know it's, this is a clear distinction between the fact that not all in the Thyatiran congregation are following the teachings of, of this woman, Jezebel. Which, hmm. by the way, just think about this. If we stop for a second, what kind of conflict do you have in this congregation then? And you've got a congregation that's clearly divided, mm-hmm. some following this, this prophetess and some not following this prophetess. John comes in and says, okay, you guys are in the right. They're in the wrong. We know how conflict works in churches, unfortunately, all too well. Yeah. And think about the, the the complexity of this situation. I think that's something to, to maybe process a little bit. Also in 24, he uh, talks about you know those who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. We don't know. Uh, I, I kind of alluded to that a few minutes ago. We, we really don't know. I think the ultimate answer is that Jezebel is probably claiming some kind of divine inspiration. And that's why she's called a prophetess. And John's answer is, well, that's not from God. It's from Satan. And, I, and again, the connection with deception or leading astray makes that connection there. But what's intriguing is they call them, as they call them, the deep things of Satan. That's what's hard to figure out. Like, mm-hmm. why would anyone call themselves, you know, other than a satanic congregation, when she's trying to be a prophetess in the community of God's people, why would she refer to it that way? So I think there's maybe a measure of, of uh, like sarcasm there. Sarcasm, yeah. Yeah. Hey, everyone. We want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access, but we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. Okay. Uh, we move into chapter three, so uh, we, hmm. which John that originally was, did not that was write. easy. Yeah, right. Uh, John did not originally write in chapters, so we just moved along to the next passage. Uh, but we, you could find it in chapter three, verse one. So this is uh, the church in Sardis. And so... This is one just like Laodicea, mm-hmm. where it, it contains only words of censure and warning, right? Now, it, there's nothing good, except there are a few people, I think in verse four, it says, you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they'll walk with me in white for they are worthy. So not everybody in the co- congregation, but at the same time, uh, is problematic, but at the same time, there there are no words of affirmation in terms mm-hmm. of, hey, but you guys are doing these good things. It's just, well, you haven't sold your garments. It didn't say what positive things that, that you are doing. So, yeah. Yeah. One of the, um, one of the two bad churches, uh, Sardis and, Phil- and Laodicea, the fifth and seventh letters, or fifth and seventh messages, have no positives, only negatives. Mm-hmm. So the church in Sardis is told, you have a name that you are living and you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that re- uh, remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your works completed before my God. So what was the specific problem at this church, do you believe? Uh, and this, again, talking about applying it to the modern day uh, context there is uh, they have a reputation for being a good church. And they probably were in the past. And now John's coming in saying, well, you're not now. I mean, if we were to stop here, like hold hold everything. I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm like thinking, oh, there's a whole conversation you and I could have about this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, how problematic is that? Because who, what congregation is going to listen to them? 
Yeah. The, the answer is we've done all these great things. Yeah. And the answer is, okay, great. But what great things have you done recently or are yeah. you doing now? And the reality is, is it's hard for a congregation to, who looks back on their past, who really did do great things to see the fact that right now they're not doing anything great at all. Mm-hmm. So you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead, you know, wake up and straight, strengthen the things that remain, which we're, we're about to die. So uh, I think the first indication is the fact that the title for Jesus, remember each of the seven messages have a title for Jesus that's unique, pretty much basically unique to each of the seven churches. Mm-hmm. And that the title for Jesus or the description of Jesus at the beginning of each of the messages relates to the message itself. So to the church in Sardis, Jesus is the one who has the seven spirits of God, which are the Holy Spirit, most likely, um, and the seven stars. And I think this, first off, this parallels loosely the message of the church in Ephesus. Um, but it suggests that they've lost their love and their witness, and they're lacking all this altogether. So it, it's, it's deeply problematic. And I think the fact that they think they're doing well, um, but they're not, is... You, it's one of those, you want to go there and go, okay, what did they do with this message? What, you know, when they read yeah. Revelation, what did they say? And I have a feeling that they were probably not very happy with John. And most of the people probably were like, yeah, no, we don't agree with him. Look at all these great things that we've done. It's like, yeah, yeah. that's not the point. Well, and, and I'm just thinking on this point, this isn't just a church issue, any organization or anything that has had success at some point. Um, it, it, I think it's so easy to rest on the glory days because you yeah, you oftentimes right. don't know when you're out of the glory days, right? right. Uh, it, like I'll, I'll throw my, I'll use a non-church example of this and you'll appreciate this one. Uh, but, it, you know, you look at Al Davis and the Oakland Raiders. This guy's like a pioneer of football. He does these great things in the 60s and 70s, win a couple Super Bowl in the early 80s, and then does nothing for decades, right? But in his mind, he's this g- brilliant genius guy. He's going to keep doing it the way he's always been doing it or whatever, and he runs things into the ground. Uh, and that can happen with any kind of organization, I think, that has had some level of success at some point. You see it with churches all the time yes. where they're resting on something. And you even see it where they've had success. And I don't even know. I don't know. Is there a better word than using the word success when it comes to church? Because how do you measure right. success? Yeah, yeah. Right? I, I, so I think, hopefully, well, hopefully everyone understands. Listeners understand what we're trying to say. Yeah, because yeah. how do you communicate that uh, right. from a quantifiable standpoint? Right, but right. oftentimes what happened, those church, I, I've seen this with churches where they've had this great success. Like And like I said, please, I feel weird using the word success, yeah, but yeah, right. it's been good. It's been tove to use yeah. uh, our friend Scott, Scott McKnight's yeah. language. And then they, they make a shift going another direction. And they still think they're doing something good. And it's like, you guys are not producing fruit, but you're still able to eat from the storehouse of fruit that you're, that you're living off of. Right. Um, and, and that could last a while, but man, it's, it's something that we need to be aware of. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that churches today need to realize is the fact that we have had a massive, massive cultural revolution taking place, like history book writing re- yes. revolution take place. You know, we talk about the Reformation and the Enlightenment and uh, and all that Renaissance and, and all those. We're living in that era. moment. We are living in a historical yeah. moment that we don't even know what to call. We call it like yeah. postmodernism, which like doesn't mean anything. It's like no. after modernism. Well, yeah. what's after modernism? Well, we don't know. We're just going to yeah. call it after modernism right, yeah. right now. This revolution is being sped up, intensified with a technological revolution as well. Yes. And so the reality is that what worked 20 years ago is not going to work now. Yeah, well, what 10 worked years ago, <laughs> 50 years ago is out. It's just like, it, it's, oh, it's, it's done. Archaic. It's, it's, it simply doesn't, yeah. it doesn't attract attention. 
And again, I think we have to have a, a lot of problems with the issues of like contemporary worship and contemporary services. I think those are misnomers. I think they're misled. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are problems with it. But the reality is, you know, I had a congregant one time and, and we had made some changes to the, to the bulletin. Now, mind you, most young people aren't even going to look at the bulletin. It's paper. They don't, I mean, they, they, they want to see it on their phone, right? They don't, they don't look at paper. But what we did is we put on one side, kind of the script, what you're used to seeing, you know, so-and-so has this prayer request, so-and-so has that prayer request. This meeting is on Tuesday night. This meeting is on Wednesday night. Uh, this happened here. This happened there. We had a script. On the other side, we had images, kind of like, almost like if you're scrolling through an Instagram page, you see mm-hmm. three images. And the first image would have a, an image with youth because there's a youth event on Wednesday night. The second image would have women because there's a women's men, things like that. And I walked by this congregant before the service was going. And I said, oh, interesting. I said, you're reading this side of the page. I said, that's the side of the page I read. And it's hmm. the side of the page with a script. I said, do you know what side of the page the young people look at? She goes, what? I said, this side, because it reminds them of Instagram. Interesting. And, and it was one of those light bulb moments because they were all ticked off that I did that. I mean, I, mm-hmm. we, we changed their bulletin on them, right? And we went to color. It's like, yeah, we, we, had, we bought a color copier and, we, and we're, we're making this expense of color because if we don't, we can't even think about communicating that there's a youth event on Wednesday night because it simply will not be able to be communicated. Yeah. So even the way we communicate has this cultural revol- revolution. So the reality, of course, is, yeah, it worked back then. And I understand that. But it doesn't work these days because we're in a radically different cultural moment, historical moment. And I don't know what the full answer to that is. I think to some extent the church should be exempt from some of that and be beyond some of that. Mm-hmm. The reality is much of our modern churches, as the churches you and I attend or have, have lead and things of that nature, are caught up in this culture of how do we appeal to people? Mm-hmm. And I think we need to get beyond beyond that, but that, that's part of the issue there. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I agree. And there's that's a whole series of podcasts in itself, but we'll, yeah. <laughs> we'll just leave it there. Yeah. Um, All right. So, so note that the church here in Sardis is told that the one who has the seven spirits of God sees... That you have received and heard the word. So good job. You've received and heard the word. And now they're told, keep it and repent. And of course, that reminds us of chapter one, verse three, the very opening. I was just of the thinking book about Revelation. that. Yeah. yeah. The very opening of the book of Revelation, the one who reads these words, the blessed are the one who reads these words, those who, and that's singular, those who hear and those who keep the things that are written in it. So you've heard it and now you need to keep it. Uh, and so the implication, unfortunately, is that in Sardis, Aside from a few, they have not been doing it. They've, they've heard the word, all is good, but they're not obeying it. And as a result of that, there are no words of commendation, only words of, uh, of warning and censure. Yeah. So after that warning, you have an actual like curse, if, if you want to use like blessing and curse type mm. uh, imagery. So uh, it says, if, if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief and, I, and you will certainly not know at what hour I will come against you. This is interesting because it sounds like what we would call the all of it discourse. You find right, it in right. uh, Matthew 24 and 20, 25. It's this oftentimes understood as an end times or a sermon. We would say it's definitely an eschatological sermon. What's it referring to? That's a whole other uh, topic. Sure. Uh, but it, it, it says in Matthew 24 verses 42 and 44 through 44, it says, be on alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming, uh, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Yeah. So 
so the threat to the church in Sardis is very similar to the threat in the church in Ephesus. And that is because of your lack of love and maybe your lack of effective witness, you're, you're not keeping these things and keeping them means acting upon them. Judgment is coming your way. And there are five commands. And what's interesting is this is one of the shorter letters, but this might take us the longest time to discuss. Uh, ultimately, the first one is wake up, which is very similar to what you just read in Matthew 24. Be on the alert. It's the same word that's used in Revelation chapter three now. Um, wake up, be on the alert, be ready, be prepared. And he says, if, if not, I will come uh, in verse uh, chapter three, three, verse three, which is the exact same phrase used in Matthew 24, verse 42. Your Lord is coming. Both passages, both Revelation 3 and Matthew 24, also refer to the fact that his coming will be like a thief. And they both refer to the fact that his coming will be at an hour when they do not know when he will. So in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is giving his disciples instructions, saying, look, you don't know when I'm coming back. And because you don't know when I'm coming back, you must stay awake and be prepared. And then he says, and here's what staying awake and being prepared looks like. It means taking care of the household, you know, Matthew 24 says, giving food to the members of the household at its proper time, which you and I know that there's a, the Jehovah's Witnesses use that in a certain way also, by the mm -hmm. way, right? But it's caring for God's people, doing the works of justice and care and compassion for the sake of God's people so that God's people might be effective witnesses to the nations uh, ultimately. Now, as a result of the fact that they're not doing this, they're warned. Remember, what you've received and what you've heard and keep it and repent because if you don't or if you don't wake up obviously meaning acting upon it then i'm going to come upon you like a thief and you probably do not know what hour i'm going to come upon you so the first problem that the church is having is obviously is complacency and complacency probably in their laurels of what they've done in the past mm. three three you know the same passage it does talk about coming like a thief is there something where the history of Sardis, where it, yeah. like Sardis itself had been captured? And is there a connection there? What's going on there? Uh, so this has been very prevalent in the history of oh, the last 50 years or so, with a couple, with a couple major works that, that came out uh, on the seven churches. Problem with the history saying, okay, yeah, there's a historical context where Sardis was asleep and they got conquered, is that the major story happened about 600 years ago. So is what happened 600 years prior, 600 years ago prior to the church, the writing of the book of Revelation, in other words. So in, in the 560 BC era, okay. um, the city of Sardis was captured. Now, the city of Sardis, the, the Acropolis, right, the, the main place where the palace would be and the temples would be and whatever, is 1,500 feet above the city down below. So oh, 1,500 wow. feet, is, that's massive. I mean, I, I remember- Especially in the ancient world. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's a massive, it's massive. There's no ski lifting gondolas. <laughs> yeah, all right. So the tradition was, I, I was going to say, I remember, I remember walking mm. up Masada, the Judean wilderness uh, by the Dead Sea, where the Romans captured it in 73 mm -hmm. and all that great story. And it's 900 feet above sea level, uh, above above the, the floor below it, right? And that that's a good climb. 1,500 feet is crazy high. All right, well, at the time- the king of Lydia at this time was a man named Croesus. He considered that basically he had this impenetrable capital city. He didn't have anything to worry about. Now, Croesus was famous for two reasons that seem to be relevant here. First off, he was extremely wealthy. He had mined a, a river called the Pactolus River, and that river was full of gold. When he mined it, he had storehouses of gold that he had stored up. In fact, the mythical King Midas 
allegedly washed his hands in the river Pactolus in order to rid himself of the Midas touch. That's, I mean, that's how much famous this river was. So Croesus was renowned for his wealth. And in fact, he's the one that funded the building of the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. Now, the Temple of Artemis is one of the seven wonders of, of the ancient world. It was massive. It's four times bigger than the Parthenon in, in uh, Athens. Very, 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 very wealthy. But secondly, he's also famous for his arrogance and complacency. In fact, stories were told years after his death of his arrogance and complacency. Basically, like kids in school would be taught, hey, let me tell you the story of Croesus and his arrogance and complacency so that you will not be like him. And he became that legendary. So the story was told that he went to the Oracle at Delphi. And the Oracle at Delphi, by the way, is a crazy, it's a crazy location there. Mm -hmm. But uh, he went to the Oracle at Delphi and he asked, should he wage war against the Persian king Cyrus? And you might know of the name Cyrus. Of course, he's mentioned in the book of Isaiah uh, and the Persian king Cyrus that let the uh, Israelites return home mm -hmm. after captivity from Babylonian captivity and all that good stuff there. All right, so Croesus goes to the Oracle of Delphi and says, hey, should I wage war against King Cyrus and the, and the encroaching Persian army? And he received this message from the Oracle of Delphi. And the message was this, on the day that you cross the river Hales, which is into Persian territory, you will surely destroy a great empire. So it's like, oh, awesome. He thought, of course, that meant sure victory. And the reality is this, that the day that they crossed the river Hales, he indeed destroyed a great empire. It just happened to be his own empire. And what happened was that during the battle, the, the first battle ended kind of, you know, didn't really get anywhere. And then the winter season kind of came along. And so during the winter season, he withdrew to his 1500 high foot Acropolis in Sardis. And he thought, well, this is impenetrable. It's unconquerable. I'm totally safe up here. And he did not have it guarded. He, he didn't even post any guards. So what happened is, and we know this from a man named Herodotus, who's a Greek a historian. He says, a Persian soldier climbed the cliff where there was no guard station at one point, uh, one part of the cliff. And he basically walked into the uh, Acropolis and he opened the gates, let the invading army come in. And Croesus indeed had, had destroyed a great army after he crossed the river Hales. The Acropolis was, was captured again 300 years later by a man named Antiochus the Great, or I think he was self-named Antiochus the Great, by the way. Uh, he was Antiochus <laughs> the Third. You, Vinny, you might know of Antiochus the Fourth. Epiphanes, yes, Epiphanes who's famous yeah. for the Maccabean uh, era. Well, yeah. his in daddy, 60s, yeah. uh, Antiochus III, uh, his army besieged the city in, of Sardis in 215 BC. Uh, and they besieged it for over a year without any success. And then finally, one of his soldiers said, you know what, I know how I can do this. And what he did is he noticed that there was a bunch of birds that were doing their business and kind of resting in, uh, up on one area of the Acropolis up there. And he's like, there's no way that area is guarded because if it was guarded, the birds wouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. So he waited till he waited till there was a moonless night. So it was totally dark mm -hmm. and he scaled it. I, I don't think he even scaled it alone, but anyways, they climbed up the Acropolis, went up and opened the gates. And again, Sardis was conquered. So there's at least two instances where Sardis was sleeping and they were conquered. And the question is, does that lie in the background? I think, Modern scholarship is, contemporary scholarship has gone, yeah, I'm not sure that it is. I kind of think that it is just because it's legendary. And yeah, it might have happened 600 years ago and 350 years ago or whatever it might have been or 300 years ago. But the reality is if school children were still being taught these stories because don't be complacent like Croesus was, I, I kind of wonder if that is indeed what, what was uh, lying in the background of this particular situation. Interesting. 
We hope you're enjoying the podcast, and we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel, is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. So there's a few commands that uh, John gives to the church in Sardis. The first one is to wake up. What's the next one and how many commands are there? Uh, So there's five commands given in this particular letter or this particular message to the church in Sardis. The first is wake up and strengthen what remains. All right. The second is strengthen what remains, which was about to die. That's chapter three, verse two. Uh, And John's answer is because I haven't found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. You not only need to wake up, you need to strengthen the things that remain. And what remains is maybe, well, you have a few people that haven't sold their garments. Again, not saying that they did anything positive, but you've got something there that needs to be ignited so that because I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Mm. Okay. 3-3 are all these like in three, three is remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So this is the main passage we've been talking about. Are these those next three commands? Yeah, exactly. That, those are the next three commands. Exactly. So no, it, they begin with therefore. So the command really is to wake up and strengthen what remains. And therefore, if they are to be watchful and strengthen what remains, then they're going to do these three things. First off, they're going to remember what they've received and heard that they must go back to the beginning um, to the gospel and the foundations. You'll see Paul do this oftentimes. Remember this, remember this. All right. Secondly, then they're going to keep it uh, or obey it, or depending on your translation, the idea of it is this continuous stress on obedience. And again, keep it and obey it means an act that's com- that's regularly done, not like once mm-hmm. in a while going to mm-hmm. church, to, but a regular act of obedience. And then the third is they're going to repent. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're going to repent. And again, it, this is something it'd just be interesting to see what the church in Sardis really did with this message, because you stop and go, you know, a community that has a name that it's alive, but really is dead. How willing are they really going to listen to this? And how well is this going to be received? And we say that not just because of the historical context of the message of the church in Sardis, but for some of you listening today, you might be in such churches and go, all right, what do we do? And how, how do we deal with this? And I think the answer is, well, we have to first be the ones to make sure that that we have woken up and that we are repentant and that we are uh, keeping watch and doing it and being obedient. And then hopefully that that message when spoken with love uh, begins to be heard by the rest of the people in charge. It's interesting that you said, you know, when you receive and hear it, it's not just hearing it once, but anytime I hear this, especially in revelation, there's obviously what you had mentioned earlier in, uh, verse three, you know, blessed are those who hear and keep the word. It always reminds me of two other things, which are just very active imperatives that, that the people of God are called to throughout scripture. They're both in the old Testament, you know, the Shema hero Israel, which is like, it's, it's not just like hearing, but it's like listening and being attentive to it. Uh, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But then also this is Genesis language, which Adam, he's put in the garden to serve and keep. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's it's always these active things that the people of God, God are called to right. do. It's not merely to say a prayer and then wait. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, it, which is in evangelical American culture. That's what we do. Say the prayer yeah. and then wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in verse three, uh, if they don't do this thing, he's coming like a thief and, and you better watch out. Yeah. What's interesting about that is that we have these notions of Christ coming. We don't know when he's going to come is is the common lingo. 
right? We're, we're, oh, we're going to totally be surprised and everything else. It's like, that's not actually what the message is. The message is those who are sleeping are mm-hmm. going to be surprised, mm-hmm. but those who are awake are not going to be surprised. Now, mm-hmm. the difference is, and I think I wrote about this in my book, Understanding the New, Test- New Testament in the End Times. The difference is, is that we may not know when he's coming, but I'm ready. Right? And the illustration I always I like to give is the fact that, you know, if parents are going away, you know, going out on a date night, for example, let's say their kids are like nine and 12 or 13. And, oh, we're going to leave you guys at home. Here's what we want you to do. You know, have your dinner. Make sure you eat. Make sure you clean up after yourselves you know, and get your homework done. And then you can maybe watch TV for a little bit and be in bed by 10. All right. Well, we all know. Well, at least in my home and my brothers and I, that would never have happened. Um, I thought you were talking about your boys. Yeah, no, no. And my, my boys probably would. would my boys, yeah, would, yeah, yeah, probably too. For them Those also. are some sneaky little dudes. So yeah, they, they're yeah, big dudes they, now. They are <laughs> very much so, and they were really good at it. By the way, I'm, I'm yeah. not sure where they got that skill from. I probably must have been their mom. But but uh, anyway, sins of the father. What happens now when Tony and I used to, when Tony and I used to go out like that, and we would come home, what we would do is we pull all the way into the driveway and get as close nice. to the garage door as we can yeah, yeah. before we hit the garage door opener. Because as soon as you hit the garage door opener, then they are scurrying yep. like cockroaches. Yep. The light turned on, right? And so, and so we can, in one of the homes we lived in, we pull in the driveway, we can look through the sliding glass door and we can see uh-huh. everything. And like, oh, they didn't do it, right? But the reality is if the kids are actually doing what they were supposed to be doing, yep. even if they don't know what time the parents are coming home, they're not surprised. Oh, hi, mom. Hi, dad. Have a good night. You know, how was dinner, right? When the kids are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, they're like, oh, you know, and, and they're hurried and, and they're, they're frazzled and they don't know what's going on. That's the metaphor that the biblical text is using, whether it's First Thessalonians, whether it's Jesus, or whether it's um, uh, John here. And that, that is, the ones who are surprised uh, are going to be the unbelievers or the believers that are acting like unbelievers. The believers are supposed to be the ones who are awake and not surprised. So the idea then is this has nothing to do with when Jesus is going to come back. It has everything to do with, are we going to be ready? So a great passage for this is First Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, first, and there's a lot in this context that we won't uh, get into tonight um, or today or in this podcast, whenever you might be listening to it. But First Thessalonians chapter five. Um, you want to read? Do you have it or want me to? Do it? I, uh, I can, but okay. if you oh, have, I have it. I have, yeah, okay. yeah. So First Thessalonians chapter five, I'm going to read verses one and two. It says, now, as for the times and epochs, brothers and sisters, I don't, you have, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. But look what verse three says. But while they are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman uh, with child and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are sons of the light and sons of day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So let us not sleep as others do. Let us be alert and sober. And so this clear metaphor of Paul is that they will be surprised. But you won't. And I think that's the, the implication there. Hey, guys, guess what? I'm going to come in an hour where you don't expect me unless you wake up. Mm. That's good. Uh, it then says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. And right there, they will walk with me in white. It makes me think of uh, chapter seven, where you have these people clothed mm-hmm. in white. So I, like that would be one of my questions, knowing the text saying, oh, is that referring to the same people? But I don't yeah. know if you want to address that now or that's a yeah, chapter well, seven so thing. Here's something that's interesting. I have spent a fair amount of time on clothing. There's, there's actually three or four different words used for clothing in the book of Revelation. 
And, you know, the, my, my thesis is, has been that John uses words with a different intent. Some words are interchangeable, but some words are not. And he, I have not figured out how he uses the word, the, the different words for clothing. I, I can't figure it out. So, so is this a different, because uh, it's, they, they're clothed in robes of white, right? Isn't that how it, uh, that, how it reads in chapter seven? I can look You're the up. scholar. Wash their robes in chapter seven, 14 and 22, 22, 14. That's used twice. White clothes occurs seven times, but there's three variants. Hmm. So there's one's a stole, a robe. Uh, that's chapter six, 11, seven, nine, and seven, 13. So six and, uh, six and seven are both referring to white robes. One's white garments, which is three five, three eighteen, and four four, and one's white fine linen, uh, nineteen fourteen. And so then you have fine linen used on four, five different occasions. You have a robe used on three different occasions, which it's always a white robe. Um, you have clothed. Uh, Jesus is clothed. The angels are clothed. The armies of heaven are clothed. Uh, the word garments occurs. So white clothes occur seven times. That's obviously important. The word for garments, hematios. Uh, is used seven times. And that's why I'm like, I can't figure out how it's being used. Cause it, my, my thought was, well, maybe one of the garment, one of the items of clothes is used for like the present age and one's used for the eschaton. Mm. It, 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 that doesn't work. Uh, one's used for the people of God in this situation. One's used for the people. Of, it's like, that doesn't work. One's used for the righteous. One's used for the, un that doesn't work. I can't figure out how he's using the, the, the various words. He's got a long robe for Jesus. He's got a robe. He's got fine linen. He's got mm. uh, clothing. He's got garments. And I have I have flushed out every single one of these words and all of their uses. And I can't figure out what he's doing with it. I, at this point in time, I, I'm, I'm like, I don't think he's doing anything with these words, which is surprising because he does something with every other word. J just about yeah, every other. Yeah. Like every time I look up a word, I'm like, okay, I, you can figure something out that that's going on there. But so uh, I can't figure it out here. Close is a common metaphor in the ancient world for one's moral and spiritual condition. Uh, and white clothes or clean clothes symbolized, as obviously, right, ethical, religious purity. Uh, soiled clothes obviously implies immorality, uh, irreligious conduct. And of course, that's used by the religious leaders to refer to the poor, the leper, and the outcast, because their clothes were obviously dirty and things of that nature there. So it was used kind of in, a, in an exclusionary way. In the ancient world, everyone... Uh, wore white, not just the priests, especially when it came to worshiping at the temple and the presence of, of their gods. So the idea of not sewing their garments is that they, their garments are white and that they are ethically and morally pure and ready for worship at the temple. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Well, hey, yeah. that closes out those two letters. So I guess we're going to wait till next time and we'll get into the last two letters. No. Not next time, because oh, next time we have special guests. We have special guests. So we have an episode. Let's finish off this episode here in a second also. But we have an episode that we've been trying to get on the books for four months or more. And mm -hmm. it's just been a scheduling issue. It's been a scheduling situation. So back in our first Corinthian study, we were talking about how we're all members of one body and how we all have gifts and we need to use those gifts. And we need to use... the the fullness of the congregation, the fullness of the community. And one of the issues that comes up is the issues of women in the church. And I think you and I have a little bit of difference of opinion on that. And that's totally mm -hmm. fine. The problem is this, is if that women in the church are not treated the same as men in the church. 
Yes. Even if they're an egalitarian congregation, and egalitarian means that you believe that male and females are equal and men, women can preach and, and hold offices and be pastors and all that good stuff. And complementarian believes, well, they're equals, but only men can be pastors and only men can be ultimately the final, final authorities there. And the reality is women are not paid the same that work in, the, that work in churches as, as a man that they work right alongside of. The reality is that women uh, might get uh, promoted to a position that the previous person had, and they were called pastor, but they're not allowed to be called pastor. Uh, and the previous person, because they were called pastor, got a certain amount of pay, but they don't get that amount of pay. And women do certain work and they don't get credit for it because, well, we can't let the congregation think that this came from a woman, you know, lest the woman be taught teaching, you know, teaching a man. And so the women end up being heavily abused in churches. And whether we like it or not, it's simply the reality. And it's almost egalitarian and non-egalitarian churches that women face this kind of abuse. So we wanted to have a couple of women come on and kind of talk to us and tell us about their stories. Because I think it's just important that we hear this because we can't make change regardless of whether you're complementarian or egalitarian. Mm -hmm. We can't make change unless we understand what was really happening, what's really, really going on. So these women are going to come on. They're going to use um, pseudonyms. They can't be identified, especially yeah. because of, of their current role. And so that was part of the problem, part of the situation. How do we get them to come on there? And we just want to hear their stories and we want to, uh, we're probably going to weep with them and we're probably going to uh, wrestle with this and what does it mean and, and figuring out what that means and, and going from there. So we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to have this go live with the week after this particular episode is here. So as you're listening mm -hmm. to this episode, it'll probably go live like the second week or first or second week of August of 2023. But then after it's been live for a month or so, we're going to backdate it to put it back in our our first Corinthians episode. So if you're listening to this episode in a couple of years from now, it's not the next episode. Yeah. It'll be the episode that we did, you know, four months ago, but mm -hmm. as far as real time is concerned, we're, we're going to be recording it next week. So yeah. 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 So that's going to be good. So yeah. excited uh, for that conversation. And uh, now are we finished with this episode? <laughs> yeah. I mean, unless you have any, any closing thoughts on, on, you know, these two, these two messages, these two churches, we talked a little bit about the modern church and the struggles there. And I'm not sure if you have anything else that you want to add. Uh, no, I, I just think you're that conversation of uh, the modern church and even get, becoming complacent. It, complacency would also then lead into the concept of being ready, right? It, which which becomes the theme in the second one. Because if you're just complacent, you're probably not paying attention to what's happening, and, mm -hmm. and, and you you run a, a larger risk of just not being prepared. Yeah. Uh, and so I would say that there even I would say there's a complementarian aspect to see what I did there playing words. Yeah, I, I, I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. I'll, I'll edit joke. that out. Thank you. A, a nice um, parallel there between mm. the types of warnings to have, because yeah. uh, I think you know, one can breed the other. I'm sorry. Uh, I thought something else also, and that is one of the things I've seen in churches also is that, well, we can't conform to the culture. You know, we can't capitulate to the culture. The gospel doesn't change and, and the culture's changed, but the gospel doesn't change. It's like, yeah, the the gospel doesn't change, but guess what? The way we present the gospel does. Yes, yes. Uh, I think that's a lame excuse. It's an, it's an excuse to not change uh, because you're comfortable, but the reality is you might be comfortable, but the gospel is not being effective any longer. It's not reaching anybody. That no, no one's hearing it. And we need to be able to find a way to make sure that the gospel can be heard by others. So, yeah. You, you know, with that, and I mean, this would actually be a, a really interesting Maybe we could look at, you know, looking at actually church missions and, and vision and that sort of thing from an application standpoint. Mm. But um, Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller now, which is a yeah. weird thing to say, 
he has a really good book called Center Church, and it's kind mm. of like an ecclesiology where yeah. uh, he he it's, it's very practical. And uh, so he has this uh, he, what he calls it as a theological vision for ministry. And mm-hmm. so he'll say like, hey. What, what we need to do is the gospel is the gospel, but how are you faithfully restating the rich mm. implications for life and ministry uh, and mission in a, in your particular cultural moment? Mm. And, and that's his thing. It's like, no, the gospel doesn't change, but guess what? For him ministering in the middle of Manhattan for right. 20 years, that's going to be the gospel is going to be the same gospel that his friend in Kentucky is going to be preaching and his friend in Seattle is going to be teaching. But because of where they are at, they're going to contextualize that in a way for that for that moment right. uh, in a way that it's going to make sense. And, right. and you have to do that. And this is yes. where you, you, you see this in missions all the time where, you know, American Christians go to Jamaica and Christianize Jamaicans. And now what do they say? Rather than uh, speaking to the Jamaicans cultural context, they say, Hey, and guess what? You guys have to use the King James Bible and wear suits, right? Which is completely impractical in Jamaica, <laughs> yeah. you know, but, but it's, 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 what you're doing is you're importing. But one they did that moment. by the way. That's, that's no, that's what I'm story. saying. Yeah, that's no, a that, that, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, yeah. I'm not making up something that sounds ridiculous. Yeah. That's what right. it is. And, and instead well, you of paying usually attention- do because you made up like an Al Davis story earlier. That I, was totally you know, ridiculous. That he was brilliant, and then he made stupid yeah, decisions. Yeah, exactly. Like really, seriously, the <laughs> you can't argue part. with the yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, but but that's that's ignoring the cultural yeah. moment of either uh, context, context of, of your yeah. own, the senders and the receiving. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so you have yeah. to do that, but the gospel stays the same, but how you communicate that has to change. It, it does. It does. Yeah. yeah. And there's wonderful stories of missionaries and how they, how they do things and things like that. And, and that's one of the big problems that, that I'm concerned about when I'm teaching in pastors in India. And that yes. is I'm teaching from my context. I don't even know your context. So I'm not even sure how you're hearing me and let alone how you're taking what I say and applying it to your context. And then they'll mm-hmm. ask me questions a lot of times. And I'm like, okay, I'm not answering that question because I'm going to give you my context of contextual answer, and that may or may not fit yours. And so it's, it's really a difficult dynamic, but um, yeah, something we should be uh, readily aware of. So, well, And uh, that's just a theological principle, you would say, in general, anytime you're uh, interpreting something and learning how to apply it, uh, you, want to, you want to be careful when you come down with um, ironclad, closed fist applications and contextualization yeah. for things. So in the, in the class I'm teaching right now on... Um, like a Christian ethic when it comes to politics. One of the things that we constantly challenge are our context and we teach it to my congregation. Like I would teach this different if it was part of a different congregation, right? But we're, we're focusing on our people. But one of the things we constantly challenge our people with is when you're coming up with a Christian position on something, you also need to recognize, am I coming up with a Christian position that's so dogmatic that, uh, yeah. and, and we're, we're pushing it on people in such a way that says, can our brothers and sisters in China or Argentina or North Korea, can they apply this or is this an American uh, context thing? Right. Uh, and so, you know, we say something like Christians ought to vote, right? You have a duty to vote. Well, that means if I don't do it, I'm sinning. That means that our brothers and sisters who live in places where you cannot vote. That means they're living in sin all the time. You know, mm-hmm. and it's like, we're not, we're not thinking outside the box. We, we create theological categories that are or, uh, so relevant to us. Or even a person in inner city who can't actually take time off of work to go vote, Doesn't even though access, technically exactly. their boss actually is supposed to allow them to do that, they can't get exactly. there. Exactly. And yep. are they sinning now because they didn't vote? And they don't exactly. have that kind of sticker on their chest when they go to the Wednesday night Bible study, said, yeah, exactly. I voted, or Tuesday night Bible study, I voted. Yeah, yep. um, yeah absolutely. So um, yep. excellent. Yep. All right. Hey, so we've pretty much solved half the church's problems already tonight. So I guess we'll finish the rest of it on our 
Well, in two episodes from now. Exactly. So, all right, everyone. Have fun. We'll catch you guys soon. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.